Hey friends, welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. My name's Matt. We're so glad you're tracking with us. Jesus Collective is a new relational network of churches and leaders with a vision to unite, amplify, and equip this Jesus-centered movement that God is raising up all over the place. During this pilot season, we're experimenting with different ways to build relationships with people in this movement, to put language to what Jesus-centered means, and to have meaningful and honest equipping conversations about the issues and opportunities facing our churches in this increasingly post-Christian context we find ourselves in. So, this podcast is one of those tools. You might find a number of different types of conversation formats shared here, and we hope you find it meaningful and engaging. You can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find information about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff, at our microsite at JesusCollective.com, or you can find us on social media. And hey, we love hearing feedback and ideas and just meeting new Jesus-y people, so you can always reach out by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Hey everybody, my name is John Hand. I'm the leadership development pastor with Jesus Collective. And uh, today we are here with uh, a couple friends of ours that we are have uh, been, been just in relationship with in the last year or so. And we're looking forward to just a really fruitful conversation today. And I'm going to hand it over to my co-host, uh, the wonderful Angela Liam. John, if you could refer to that, refer to me that way every time, I, I'll take it. The wonderful that's, that's Angela Liam. You can, uh, we'll, like- we'll write it in the contract. <laughs> and double my pay while you're at it. Welcome, yes. friends. Welcome. We're so happy to be here. I'm Angela. I'm a pastor from Northern California and co host of this podcast. And we are excited about today. This live podcast is a unique um, endeavor. Jesus Collective is looking always to find third way approaches to some of the most challenging topics out there. And today we recognize that the conversation around the U.S. election is only effective for a certain portion of our audience. We have people tracking with us from all over the globe, but we feel like it's a great case study in this idea around third-way leadership, which is our hope here in this podcast, is to talk about third-way leadership in a polarized world. So while today we might be talking about the American election that is on our horizon for those of us in the United States, we recognize that polarization is a thing. It's a thing in our society, and we are seeking to find a third way into these types of conversations. So today is gonna be a blast. Without further ado, let's meet Megan and Mike. Yeah, so our guests today are um, Megan Good and Mike Ashcraft. So Megan is the teaching pastor at Trinity Mennonite Church in uh, Glendale, Arizona. And um, she is uh, just a gifted teacher that we, we've really appreciated. She's done uh, some um, work with us in Jesus Collective on our Jesus-centered essentials, which is like theology rooted in the, the Radical Reformation and just did some teaching and just has a really profound ability to help us see Jesus in Scripture. And then uh, our other guest is Mike Ashcraft, who's the lead pastor at Port City Church, which is a, a multi-site church really kind of anchored out of Wilmington, North Carolina. And Mike is a creative, passionate leader. Uh, that I have just really a lot of respect for. And and I love the way that Mike creatively uh, tackles the issues of the day 
in a very Jesus-centered way. And today we'll, we'll get to experience some of his creativity and the way that they at Port City are seeking to make Jesus central in this hot-button, charged political time. Um, so as we, as we dive in, we are, uh, this is October 27. If you're listening on the podcast as a record later, we chose this day because this is one week from election day in the, in the States. And, uh, we, we realize that this is in maybe modern history, one of the more polarized times in American culture that doesn't just impact American culture. I live in Canada. This is very much impacting Canada. If you live in the UK, you would even say there, this conversation is impacting you. This seems to be a global conversation or say maybe with global implication. And, and so we're going to steer right into it today and talk about essentially how do we lead and disciple in our churches and ministry contexts through this. So leading up to it and then really in the, in the wake of uh, this election, we're gonna we're, we will end up having two groups of people in our church. Some who would say this is great. Uh, we're thankful that the candidate that we wanted to win is one, and those who would say the world is about to end, <laughs> and might even might even experience depression from an emotional perspective. And we are called to put Jesus at the center and lead and disciple people through that, and also to be a winsome witness in the world. So. Um, let's just dive into to this conversation. So, Ange, why don't you kick us off? Well, maybe Megan and Mike, maybe you could provide us just a little bit of context of where, like, your unique pocket of this conversation, how your local context is interacting with it. Megan, you want to go first? <laughs> sure. Well, my, my congregation is situated in kind of an urban environment in Phoenix, Arizona, city about 4 million, and Arizona is obviously a swing state right now. Um, I, I can't tell not living anywhere else how distinct the swing state experience is from the experience everyone is having right now of high emotions, uh, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of weariness. Um, I, I think something I've been reflecting on in conversations with people, both, both inside and outside the church locally in the last few months, is just, um, I, I previously had a pastor had never had a lot of experience with the emotion of disgust and like what, what results when, when people's feeling together, even more than hatred, just begins to be defined by this, this visceral disgust with each other. And, and the ways that that begins to skew <laughs> all interactions and, and our ways of seeing the world. Um, so that, I think that is where a lot of my kind of heightened attention is right now, as I'm listening to what the dynamic is, is a lot of weariness and a lot of just disgust and frustration. And I have a lot of thoughts and questions about where that emotion leads Christians, but I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> Ooh, cliffhanger. <laughs> Before we pipe, pop over to Mike, uh, does your church have a particular persuasion politically or because you're in a swing state, you end up split? Like what is the demographic? Yeah. So our congregation is a, a really interesting blend of people in part because we are a mix. Um, we have some people who come to this church because we're in the community and they've been invited by someone and, and just happen to live close. And we have, we have a good portion of the church that drive from 
you know, 30, 45 minutes across the city because they really wanted a Jesus-centered community and they found something theologically here that felt distinct. Um, so that, that blend of people who are driven by a theological vision and people who are driven by a community experience um, creates some real diversity, both in theology and in politics. So our, our congregation would cover the entire spectrum of both categories, um, perhaps with a, a slight, I would say, left lean, um, but but there's certainly no question that everybody is there <laughs> across that, that whole political and theological spectrum. Thank you. That's helpful. Okay, Mike. She set the bar. That's what we're yeah, looking for. Yeah, she did. Like, I, it's really context. interesting. The um, just the emotion of disgust. I think that's just a that's a great. I'm gonna like wrote it down trying to think about that. But um, you know where my particular you know kind of bent is always almost always in the future. Like I'm always trying to figure out you know what what are things going to be like. How do we prepare ourselves to be there? Um, not only how do we prepare ourselves to be there, but how do we actually contribute and create to what it's going to be like when we get there, especially as a church. You know, the context for me, um, we're a non-denominational church that um, I was a part of the start uh, 21 years ago. And so our church has really grown. Uh, and in some ways, I would even like the word matured. We're, we're just a different, um, you know, we've become very different than what we started and how we were in the beginning. Um, by God's grace, I think the, um, you know, and Wilmington is in the, in the deep south, the southeastern tip of North Carolina. Um, which we kind of refer to jokingly as the belt buckle of the Bible belt, because it's mm -hmm. like, it's literally no man's land when it comes to uh, kind of deep South um, and a lot of the stereotypes uh, in some ways, in other ways it's not, but um, you know, we're a lot like Megan's church, just very, very politically diverse. And um, you know, so I think the, and the challenge, like I said, you know um, where we are as a church is really learning how to lead through this. And I think John, what you set up is so that when the dust settles, you know, who we are um, is going to be the most important thing for us as a church and really trying to lead and teach and kind of, um, you know, model in that direction. Yeah. So, the, uh, so the, I have a, I, want, I would love to know what you're seeing in your churches. Um, our, our friend Brad Jersak recently said in a conversation we had in Jesus Collective that the U.S. is in a cold civil war. Uh, there's a undercurrent of of deep resentment and and obviously the polarization that's taking root that is essentially splintering. I'm an American, so splintering us uh, into fractured bits. Uh, and I, I'd be curious in, in your churches, what's the the political climate inside your church? So could you tell us a um, a story? Uh, where you would say this was this is a win. We're seeing a shiny example of a disciple of Jesus in this time. And then just because you know it's interesting and it's real, maybe do you have any examples of maybe some naughty members who've like not been uh, necessarily on their best behavior in this season? Well, I guess what's, I would. What, yeah, go ahead, Megan. Yeah, say a couple things. Um, so our. our church is very community oriented and really focused on life groups, kind of small groups that meet midweek. And I think we've been feeling the tension ratchet up in those, those small group settings for a couple of years now, um, you know, that kind of spikes peaks and then goes back down with different headlines. And um, so it's not so much that like what we're feeling right now is entirely unique to this moment. That's been a dynamic for a couple of years. 
And I think if the strongest point of hope and positivity for me is that I, I've now had occasion to see and, and experience with some of these small group leaders several times, fairly significant blowups around politics between people where people spoke spoke in ways that were emotionally driven and perhaps not the most Jesus-centered, who mm-hmm. were able to to reflect on that and come back into conversation with their groups and and reaffirm a commitment to to being together, to the value of each other, to the value of of the Christ-centered conversation they're having that is bigger than the conflict that unfolded. And I it impressed me so much because I think that act of, of repentance and reconciliation right. is, is hard. It's hard work. And it's, it's hard for leaders to sit in it <laughs> when it's going down and it's, it's hard for the people doing it. So that is the most kind of hopeful thing I've seen. Um, on the flip side, I'm not going to give any particular examples that throw anyone under the bus, <laughs> but I will say one of the things we've discovered, um, we're in the process of reopening our services for the first time since March um, with an outdoor service. Since in Phoenix, it's just getting decent. <laughs> and, <laughs> and one of go back most- outside. <laughs> <laughs> it just dipped below a hundred last week. So we're ready. <laughs> there you go. Um, but one of the things that we've discovered in the midst of that conversation about church reopening, whereas as leaders, we're really trying to make these decisions with health data and, and with, you know, the best interests of our community in mind, and that there are people on both sides of the political spectrum who can't see these decisions as anything but politically motivated because they're so politically committed. Yeah. And yes. regardless of what anything we might say or do on the subject, like it, it's so <laughs> laden on their end by convictions of now to how they're seeing others that it's it's almost impossible for them to believe that there could be another another motive or another conversation yeah that's really good i I would say you know from our end is a lot of the same to me the thing that i've been um, most impressed with is um the conversations like uh you know, we've been really working hard and use the phrase lean in, I think, John, at the very beginning. Um, and we talk about that, that to lean in is to get really curious. And, you know, instead of asking how, because we usually make our, our statements like kind of a, from a position of, con- of, of condemn, uh, con- you know, we're condemning someone, we're, we're condescending towards them. We say, you know, how could you vote for that person? And instead, we've really challenged people to turn that into a question, like to say, how could you vote for that person? And then listen. And, um, you know, whether it be issues around race and racial reconciliation, around a lot of justice issues and even politics, you know, we, we began this uh, a while back, but through the pandemic, particularly just really teaching with this in mind and, and being willing to correct publicly, um, you know, and in person, people call me and they say things like, well, Mike, you know, I can't believe you're making, we, we started regathering uh, to Megan. Uh, we've been, we're about 14 weeks in, we started very small and then we've been incrementally um, adding um, and we have a, a pretty big auditorium, so we've been adding uh, responsibly. And, you know, the challenge we've been telling people is, um, you know, we're not, we're not, we didn't suspend our services because Governor Cooper told us to, um, which is always the big deal. The church, you know, the government can't tell us something to meet. It's like, that's not why we did it. We, we chose to be helpful. And that's always our posture. Whatever we believe is going to be helpful, that's what we're going to do. Whatever's obedient to Jesus and is helpful to serve our community, we're going to do that. We've been very clear about this. When people call me and they say, Mike, I can't believe you're letting the governor shut us down. You know, I will say, let me let me preface something and I'll say, this is why we're doing this. Do you trust that? Like, and, and just put it, make, make it relational. And we're modeling this. And we're, you know, I've, I've tried to tell about our staff. Whenever someone says the church is closed, you correct them. The church is never mm-hmm. closed. We never closed. We suspended our gatherings. We've been very intentional with our language. 
Um, and what it's allowed is conversations. I mean, some, and, you know, even the, the, in the pandemic, we're a pretty large church. So often it gets a little bit more anonymous, but we've been able to be very uh, personal, a lot of phone calls, a lot of that type of just what, you know, when someone has an issue, pick, them up, pick up the phone and call them. When you see something someone posts that you're instead of firing back a comment, pick up and call them. And we've seen a lot of really healthy conversations where people, even if they don't agree, they understand and they're committed to being a, the body of Christ first. And then secondarily, because I think, you know, Megan, just what you said, the, the thing that makes you crazy is people, they'll, they'll tell me that, you know, Mike, I know you're doing this because you're pro-Trump or pro-Biden or whatever their position is. <laughs> and you're just like, no. And so it, we've seen some of that and people have just stayed away because they think that somehow, um, you know, wearing a mask makes them a Democrat or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And that's probably been the hardest thing. And again, our posture has just been, I'm going to ask you to trust me. Like we're walking through this together. I'm going to ask you to trust me. And I think one of the other things, if I can add this, that we, I think is so important for the churches to do is in a culture and, you know, the opportunities to be distinct in this season are really unprecedented. I mean, you know, all you have to do is be nice and you're like, (laughs) you know, immediately set apart from most people. But one of the things we've said in our in our regathering and even in the way we handle, um, you know, the politics is we're going to be responsible for the things that we say and the, and the decisions that we make. We're not going to pass blame. When we, when we make a decision to suspend services, we're going to take responsibility for that. When we make a decision to say something publicly about race or to say something about issues that are important, we're going to take responsibility for that. We're going to be very clear. We're going to be compassionate. And we're going to always center it back to what we believe that Jesus is calling us to be as his, as, you know, his followers first. And so that language has really helped me personally center myself Mm-hmm. Um, and then to be able to kind of lead our church in that direction as well. Megan, are you finding um, little sound bites like that? Like these are f- phrases I find myself repeating over and over. These keep these. Are you finding sound bites like that? Well, I, I think I've certainly been. I've been on a long theological journey on over the last four years of kind of clarifying my political theology. Like, what do I actually believe about the relationship of the church and politics? And I had a professor tell me once, you, you know, you, you know, you've really understood something when you can say it in a sentence or two. <laughs> and I think this, this time has really been helpful to me to like come down to what are some of those core sentences, even if I, I don't tend to repeat them the same way as much, but, but getting that clear that I can say like, this is what it is. Um, the main politic of a Christian is that Jesus is Lord. <laughs> and the main place <laughs> that that politic is lived out is in the church. Um, the community of people who have willingly given Jesus allegiance. And I, I feel like everything, everything I'm saying right now in conversations are looping back around those two. Um, we believe that Jesus is Lord and we believe that the place that Lordship is lived out is in the willing community of citizens of this new kingdom who voluntarily given allegiance <laughs> and it just keeps coming around. I'm also curious where your main, and I'm not even sure the right word for this, but I want to say veins or venues. Where are you, um, what pathways of communication are you using to get these messages out? Is it largely from the Sunday morning stage? Have you begun to do your own podcast so that you've got more airtime in front of your people? Are you primarily leading into leadership development? Like what are your venues of communication that you're using to get this message in or out. <laughs> Megan, you go first. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think 
what has happened in COVID has narrowed the what feels like the platforms in some ways for what I would hope to be doing right now, because mm -hmm. I, I certainly am a big believer that e the communication patterns that happen online are not the same, no matter what mm -hmm. format you're using yep. as, as in person. So, so we're certainly using the pulpit. Um, but I, I think I really have to credit a colleague of mine here, Scott Peterson, has just been really passionate about this conversation for a few years. And so I'm really grateful we took advantage of, you know, a year out <laughs> having some conversations mm. in person. Um, specifically, one of the things we wanted to do in a smaller group setting that we didn't feel able to do in the pulpit because it's not really Bible material is actually talking to people about political theories and mm you know, what, what have been some of the different political theories that have dominated the church over 2,000 years of history, the different ideas Christians have had. Um, and, and part of the purpose of doing that is to help people understand, to, to kind of get to the point in the conversation where we can say, Christians can hold the same values and have a different political theory about how those values oh, wow, that's great. are applied in a system. And that's a really revolutionary thought to a lot of people because they, they assume there's a link directly between the value and, and the system. And, and part of what we wanted for our people is to break that link to say like we don't we don't have to assume because somebody's political theory is different than ours that that their values are different than ours um and like i think we're we're hoping to like have interjected some healthy doubt into the, that conversation <laughs> earlier which i think leads to the, the curiosity mike was saying you know like right. to make you really ask like before i assume what's going on here let me ask oh, that's cool <laughs> how about you guys that's really um, that's really good. We we have um, we've had a, a relatively um, you know, kind of long history with the digital um, format using um, our website and uh, live streaming and, and such. Just because we have a pretty transient community, so a lot of people have followed us from from different places like that. And then um, you know we use certainly social media, Instagram, and it's funny what we what we began doing. Um, we started this about two years ago. Um, we were actually using, um, we were talking about just doing some revisioning stuff. A lot of what we're talking about with this Jesus-centered movement um, is newer to us. I mean, you know, we, we, we come from, I come from a Southern Baptist tradition, which, which I'm grateful for, um, and grew up with a lot of things that, that I'd always, you know, kind of just, uh, Jesus seemed to not say this, you know, and then so you just wrestle and wrestle. And, and again, you guys, I told you earlier, have been so huge in helping me, Bruxy and some other folks, and just really helping me. Um, kind of both affirm some things and also really shape some things um, that I was wrestling with. And um, we started this because uh, uh, we were talking about our vision and really revisioning our church and using what Seth Godin calls the smallest Bible audience. Yep. And so we just said our smallest Bible audience is the five people on our leadership team. And then it turns out to be the 50, 65 people on our staff. And then it turned and we just started this. I mean, just one circle at a time. And so even as we we're regathering, we started with our um, with just our vol our staff and staff families. Then we started with our um, volunteers and kind of key leaders. And then we just opened up to the more public format in the last couple of weeks. But we, while we have these smaller numbers of people gathered, we're just using that time to talk about these things, to model, you know, um, we, we were talking about the fact a lot of people have asked, you know, again, because of the reopening and wearing masks is a big deal in, in North Carolina. Yep. And um, we require everybody to wear a mask and people have done it. So they certainly wear their mask and, and very few people complain. And what I said, I said, you know, I said, people call me and say, Mike, we can't believe that people are wearing masks in your in your congregation. They don't complain. 
And they all clapped. And I said, because people, you know, we, we're distinct, right? We do things differently than everybody else. We don't have to argue about everything. We don't have to make, you know. So we've used those kind of things to both communicate incrementally and then also to model it as we see it and affirm what's happening, even in the smallest, most subtle ways. That's, I really like that. I like, uh, I like the way that you're starting almost like the, the kingdom with the, the yeast that starts out and then it just kind of, you know, leavens the whole thing. And then it, like, it really does ripple. So I, I, can we turn to the personal a little bit? Um, and Megan, when we chatted a couple weeks ago and talking about uh, this conversation, you, you told a little bit of a story of kind of your own transformation in this area. When you think about four years from now, to where you are today, you've experienced growth in, in your imagination around the political realms and polarization. I'd just love to hear a little, a little bit of your evolution on that. And same with you, Mike, when, when Megan's done. Yeah. You know, it's funny as, as I was reflecting on this, preparing for this conversation, I, I have been a Jesus lover since childhood. And I feel like the last four years, I had the conversion experience in a new way to Jesus that a lot of people speak of earlier in their life. And it's the first time in my life where I feel like I really was fundamentally challenged to like rethink my assumptions about Jesus. (laughs) And, and part of that for me, I, it's not so much an intellectual change. Like I would have said four years ago that I believed that the kingdom of Jesus was different from the kingdom of America. And I would have said that my hope was in Jesus alone. (laughs) Um, But I, I think grappling with with the emotions <laughs> that I felt and many people felt in different ways uh, around events in the last four years and in having some friends really challenge me on on you know that that my <laughs> my emotional experience and, and even the ways that I was speaking were not reflective of these mm. theoretical commitments I held um really drove me to ask some hard questions. Like, why is why does my affinity with people who agree with me on political ideology sometimes feel stronger than my affinity with other Jesus followers? Like that, you know, that is a huge concerning question. Um, and, and that really drew me into this journey of, I think, repentance and unlearning that, that has really caused me to, I, I can't believe sitting here today that I can't believe what I missed in the teachings of Jesus. <laughs> like, I just can't believe how much was in front of me that I wasn't seeing. Um, and, and just to give one example of that, part of what has just like shaken me to the core is the temptations of Jesus. And I had preached on those temptations so many times um, and, and never really understood or asked myself the question, why was this actually tempting? Like, mm-hmm. how was how it possible that somebody as good as mm-hmm. Jesus, like what, what causes the best human who ever lived to be tempted? And and specifically that this conversation between Jesus and evil about temptation where Satan shows Jesus, the nations of the world and says like, Jesus, wouldn't all these places be better if you were in charge of them? <laughs> like Jesus, you can fix <laughs> yeah, the yeah, political you can help yeah. <laughs> Jesus, look at America under your rule. And, and how viscerally tempting that that was, which we know because Jesus didn't just wrestle with it at the beginning of his ministry, but in Gethsemane, this is still the dilemma. <laughs> like, I have disciples here with weapons who are ready to fight for me. The crowds welcome me to Jerusalem and are on my side. I can take the nations and I can make things better. And, and how Jesus both felt the temptation of that and also just 
this incredible level of conviction that God's kingdom is invitational and that you can't, you can't build God's kingdom using Satan's means <laughs> and, and how the, the church has like fallen for that again and again for 2000 years. <laughs> like we just keep playing it out and we keep failing it where Jesus succeeded at it <laughs> um, because it's, it's a, it's a good temptation, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a temptation Quality. to build the right thing the wrong way. <laughs> and, um, that just is like blowing my mind and like rebuilding from the ground up how I think about what kingdom work is and how we go about it. So, so what do you do with voting then? Uh, you, you get asked the question, I'm sure people ask you, do you vote pastor? And do you talk about uh, the role of our participation in the broader culture with you making the church such the locus of say advance kingdom advancement. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that should be a real and open conversation for Christians and I don't have a final answer to it. I would say I vote, um, but I vote with modest hopes, right? Like with, with a, very, with so a very, very clear knowledge in mind that like the kingdom of Jesus will not be advanced through my vote. It's just that society might be better. Right. Cause Jesus's kingdom is invitational and me like voting to enforce <laughs> something on somebody else doesn't make Jesus's kingdom advance. It just makes society a little better perhaps for everyone else, but that's a pretty modest hope. <laughs> right. And, yeah. um, you know, I've heard others say like they vote, but with repentance, like with the yeah. knowledge that like through the act of voting, I am participating in, in a some sense, holding a sword against someone's neck, <laughs> which isn't, isn't, the Jesus kingdom ethic at all. So I, I think, I think we can do it, but I think with, with modesty, humility and with repentance. <laughs> repentance. That's great. Yeah. Mike. Good. Yeah. So my, my journey um, is, is, you know, kind of similar. Like I said, I grew up uh, Southern Baptist and my, you know, kind of even my, my wrestling into what people would say is your call to ministry, which I never, you know, really had in the traditional way. Cause I want to be an architect. Um, sometimes I still do <laughs> like now, um, but, um, but when I was, uh, I remember, you know, just really wrestling with the gospel and it, it really came because someone, you know, I grew up again with like the 32nd invitation end of a message and you tell people, Hey, if you want to go to heaven, you receive Jesus. And if you do, your, your attorney sealed. And I, and I would, and I grew up like that and it wasn't, I didn't believe it. It just didn't seem the full picture like it I was like there's just this is not like a do you want a corvette or a chevette that's what kind of car i drove in high school it had to be something more significant than that and when i began to read and so you know uh, this lady asked me one time in church she just said mike why don't you just do an invitation you can present the gospel in two seconds and then have people respond and i remember i just panicked and, and i've been you know the pastor for eight years been in the ministry for almost 15 years at that point in time and I just panicked. And it wasn't because I didn't believe that was true or because I couldn't present the gospel like that in 30 seconds. I knew all the different mechanisms to do it. It's just in my gut. I'm like, I don't know if this is what Jesus is asking me to be about. And so I began to, I just took a while and I began to research and just say, how did Jesus present his gospel? And what I realized was, like you said, you know, Megan, it's one of those things you're going, I can't believe I didn't see this before, but everything he said was the kingdom of God is at hand. And so that just got this, you know, like, so what is this? I grew up thinking the kingdom of God is what happens after I die. And I don't know that I was ever implicitly taught that. It's just what I always thought. And realizing that it's here and it's now. And then I began to notice the other thing that kind of coupled with that is that sin is never presented, or not never, is almost never presented as a moral problem. It's an authority problem. 
it's it's a it's authoritative first. It's which rule you know you sin will have its mastery over you. It will rule over you. There's a reign, and therefore there has to be then a rule and a reign in the kingdom of God as well. And that that dichotomy got me just you know because then it's like everything now. Now everything now matters in the kingdom, and what God is doing here now that yeast that kind of leavens the whole lump that all of my choices, all of my, the activities of my mind, my attention, all those things matter. And it was a very freeing thing because it was no longer, well, I got to be a good kid because the Bible has these commands and I've got to comply with those commands. It was like, no, God has invited me. And it's like, would you, you know, God has invited me to contribute and to continue to participate in the shalom that he's designed. Um, and that was just really freeing for me. And it took me a long time to sort it and to give words to it. But that's really what my, it's so funny. I think I told you this because when Bruxy came out with this book, the gospel in 30, you know, the reunion, the gospel in one word, three words, and 30 words. I had just done this whole series on the, what the gospel was. And I'd done it in 140 characters because it was tweetable. I was like, oh my gosh, I hope Bruxy doesn't say something different than me. And he went through the same thing. And it was so funny because I, I had written this in there long before I knew what it was. I said, you know, the, the, the gospel is the good news of Jesus's life, his uh, his his birth, his life, his death, resurrection, to save sinners and to establish his kingdom. And I didn't even really know what that meant when I wrote it down, but I just began to explore it. And when I read his book and he's like, he talked about the kingdom. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, it's been there this long. And so that was my journey with it. And then that's what really kind of unfolded as we began to talk about this as a church to really teach the gospel. And what I think is just a a, a more holistic, but not only that more compelling way for us to live that really puts all the political aspirations like in perspective like you know there, it, I, I don't think it's a problem that people pursue politics or that they vote or even if they like a particular platform over another it's it's that sense that it it is it is so um it's not the authority that we live under you know and mm-hmm. the thing we just taught on last couple of weeks uh, at port city was um you know when jesus stood before Pilate, and he said um you know, if my kingdom were at this world, we would have, we'd have been in a fight. Like it, there's no question about it, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he, and he didn't like give any, he didn't like say anything else. He just laid down his life. And it's like, one of those things for me, it's like, okay, if, if Jesus's kingdom were of this world, we should get out on the streets. We should do all the things that everybody's doing, but his kingdom is not of this world. So we have to pause and go, if that's how the world acts, how then do we live under a different rule and a different reign? And then begin to act and live in that direction. And so that's, that's where we've been, um, you know, in that. So I, I don't, I don't have a problem. Like I said, in, you know, kind of, I vote because I have friends who serve our country and have served our country. And I have friends who've lost their lives from our country and the, the privileges we have in the United States of America, I've traveled a lot of parts of the world are they're unparalleled. So I recognize that. I don't I try not to take that for granted. Um, but I, you know, I, I've, I've long since given up that, that the politicians are reflecting my values Mm-hmm. Um, because the way they speak and talk and the condescension and the belittling other people just isn't anywhere in who um, God is forming me to be. Can we circle back around to Megan's modest hope uh, concept? Because as we approach this election, the, the very nature of the polarization in the country would suggest that a, about 50% of our populace is about ready to get fairly unstable in their um I'm by unstable, 
hopefully not in their behavior. But what I mean is we have a hope and an anchor point in Jesus that allows us to be stable in unstable circumstances. But about 50% of our populace is about ready to feel pretty unstable because of how the vote came down. How are you taking an ethereal concept like Jesus is your anchor point. Have modest hope over here. Put your hope over here. How are you making that tangible, real uh, every day instead of a pie in the sky? Yeah, I know Jesus is Lord. Like, nope. How does that anchor thing become tangible to your people? I think there's there's two pieces to it. There there is the short term hope and the long term hope, right? And those those almost yeah. have to be addressed as as two separate pieces. Um, and the short term one, I, I was thinking about this as Mike was describing his kind of conversion experience um, with that statement from Jesus: "My kingdom is is not of this world." Um, people have a lot of confusion about that on two in two directions. I think like some people take that to mean like it's it's all in heaven and therefore like the only hope is the long term other people are sort of ignore it and like drive it try to drive it into the government um but i think jesus's jesus's kingdom when he says not of this world like he doesn't mean it's not earthly <laughs> um that like there the kingdom is is breaking through the soil in the world um it, he's just relocating the place it's coming from like his kingdom being earthly doesn't require it claiming rome like Rome, Rome is not irrelevant to people's lives, but Rome is not the kingdom even in its best condition, right? So, so the in some sense, the short-term hope is like regardless of what Rome does or regardless of what America does, the kingdom is going to keep sprouting as long as the people of faith keep living, right? So it's 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 just understanding properly like what the ground of of the breakthrough is going to be. Um, I, I want to turn it back to Mike before I say anything long-term. What would you say, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's that's our been our posture. And I think it goes back to that idea of um, when you think about how do you make it tangible or, or tactical, I, I think that it has to be relational. And what that means is that we have, you know, one of the exercises I gave our folks and I said, look, sit down and make a list, um, you know, because we, we, we know that Jesus is our anchor point. We're trying to learn how to live in that. I said, make a list of why you would vote for Joe Biden and just, just get a piece of paper out and just make a list and then get another piece of paper out and say, why would you vote? Why would I vote for Donald Trump? And then just make a list. And, and what you have to do is you have to test yourself because when, you know, depending on which way you might be leaning towards or which way you may be very passionate about, it's going to create a visceral reaction against the other thing. Like for some people go, mm -hmm. I can't, I, I can't even imagine voting for that right. person. Yeah. And what we don't realize is that that emotion is what we're going to take and we're going to, pin on anybody who's got a bumper sticker or a sign or a t-shirt or a hat or anything else. And the way of Jesus allows us to act differently. And the reason I, I had our congregation do that is it's a test for me, because if I can begin to understand that there are, or someone who doesn't vote, whatever your position is, if I can understand that someone can actually see something, I, I can see or understand how they could actually hold that position, then it allow it, it prevents me from dismissing people. And I think that's the worst thing that's happening right now is that whenever we see that visceral re uh, reaction is we just dismiss that person as being dumb or you can't be a Christian if or whatever. And you know the reason we made this relationship, one of the statements we use around Port City a lot is we say we don't, we don't uh, stand on issues, we walk with people. 
And, and this is what we always do. And that's why, you know, understanding is, is foundational. And, you know, we use the phrase, tell me a name and tell me a story. Um, because if you want to just talk about an issue, that's one thing. But I wanted you to talk about a person, that's where they are, because that's where understanding opens. And that's really like, to me, one of the, the kind of doorway to learn how to love another person, which, which is the, the hallmark of what Jesus actually taught us to do, what the church is supposed to be about. That's great. Uh, and I like how you're uh, providing practical tools for people to navigate through these things. So this is kind of a quick hit because we have, I have one more question I want to ask you, but a quick hit. Any other practical tools, examples you gave, uh, little applications that you are equipping your people with in this time, similar to what you just did, Mike? Well, I think one thing we're doing right now, we're, we're currently in our first, since I've been a pastor, at least it's been our first congregation-wide book study on um, loving enemies. <laughs> and um, because we just come to the, the strong conviction, like you can, you can have a variety of opinions on politics, but how you treat your enemies is the central Jesus question, yeah. yes. right? Like that, yeah. the, the question of the cross is like, what are your enemies worth? Um, so, so the, the place we want our people to be thinking and operating from is not in denial of having enemies. Like let's, right. let's be really real about that. Like there are people we think are harming us. There are people we think are harming others. They are enemies. <laughs> but now that we've named them, now that we know them as they are, like, what is, what is the Jesus place in relation to them and and i think that that allows us to <laughs> to be real <laughs> while also leading a really challenging path um the other thing we've had some conversation about in the past that i think more is needed is actually um equipping and conversation around emotions and, yes. and emotional maturity and i think christians have been shockingly kind of unreflective about <laughs> the place of emotions as so much of what drives and moves us as people and like what is anger where does it come from what is its positive function how do how do i know when righteous anger has become toxic anger <laughs> and and so trying to have conversations with people about emotions themselves and you know, I, I, I like to talk about fear most of all, because I say, like, nothing is more toxic to discernment than fear. Like, yep. fear fear is the, the enemy of the voice of God. <laughs> and mm. so, helping people have actual tools to work with feeling, I think, is really important. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Um, you know, ours has been similar in that same way as to kind of really, like, we do a lot of tests. Like, when you read an article, when you see a tweet, what's your visceral reaction? Like, have people monitor it right then, you know? I know for me, I've read books and you read the first two chapters of the book. And you just want to throw it through the, <laughs> through the wall. I can't, you know, you, in your mind, you're going, I can't believe someone could write something. So, you know, so, and you, you have this list of, of adjectives and, you know, again, we use a lot of language kind of quippy things. We talk about, you know, your gut reactions will reveal your readiness to understand. And, and what that means is not that I disagree with a book. It means that I'm not ready to understand what that author is saying. And when I reframe it like that, now I've got work to do. And, um, you know, as far as the, what we're doing to kind of prepare our church, you know, it's, it's just a lot of those things. We're preparing them. We're saying things like, look, this election is not going to end the chaos. Our yeah. job as followers of Jesus is to navigate it faithfully and to know what that looks like at every single turn is how we're preparing and giving them really practical things to do. Um, and it's about their emotions. We're talking about for the next few months, we're talking about, we just did a series on, uh, called compelled and it's an exploration of the way of Jesus. And we talked about what people who walk in the way of Jesus bring to the world around them. We talked about dignity. We talked about, you know, we, we, uh, we bring hope. 
Um, and we, we use this very uh, definitive way so that when, we're, when you're talking to another person or you're going to tweet something or you're going to repost something or you're going to speak to someone, are you bringing dignity? Are you treating them worthy of the image in which they were created? And just all these kind of litmus test um, gut checks for people to really kind of hone in on. That's great. So last, last question here. Uh, so in, in a sentence or two, uh, a week from today or maybe two weeks from today, potentially half of the people in your communities where you live will think, yay, and, you know, the right side has won and the others will think that the world is ending. And that will happen in your churches as well. And those people will sit in the same row of chairs if they're meeting in person or they would identify with the same body of believers. Uh, what are you doing very brief, briefly in a sentence or two? What would you say to those watching advice from your own experience as to maybe how to lead in that, in that tension? Like there's a big elephant in the room or in the community that you pastor. What do you do with it? Well, just very briefly, one of the things we're doing um, is election day communion. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. But it's, it's really important for us to say, number one, like the, the unity we hold cannot be made or broken by, by what happens next Tuesday. And we want to get together Tuesday night and say that. Um, we also want to be able to say in that act of communion, we don't own the table of Jesus. Like nobody has veto rights over this table. Right? <laughs> um, and, and to remember that when Jesus hung on the cross, he, he extended forgiveness to the soldiers beneath him and to the criminal next to him. Yeah. Right. That like grace moves in all directions and, <laughs> and let's like anchor ourselves and center ourselves in that <laughs> scandal and that discomfort of, of just how far that grace reaches. Yeah. That's really helpful. I know what I'm going to tell my church now. <laughs> the community we hold is not made or broken by this election. <laughs> uh, that's really good. Um, you know, I, I, it's so funny. I, I'm a, um, you know, like I said at the beginning, my context is always kind of future. And, and when the pandemic began, I was trying to think, and the election was on, on my radar, but I began to think like, what kind of people do we want to be at the yes. end of this? Yes. And, you know, that everything that's going to happen in the meantime is going to contribute to that. And, um, you know, so one of the things, again, is kind of these sayings that we use is that everything that you do either adds to the chaos or it contributes to the healing. And if we, if we can just keep our, our minds on all those little, little choices. And the reality is when, when, you, when, you, when you live like this, this is what makes me crazy about a lot of leaders when they react. If you've reacted as though if one side wins, then Jesus' kingdom is advanced. You got to live with that yeah. if it doesn't occur, and then you're, and that's what the church is historically. We are always backpedaling on all kinds of things, and the reality is, if Joe Biden wins or if Donald Trump wins, we won't do anything different. Like we we are we are still focused on the exact same thing that we were focused on that we're focused on today. We were focused on last week, and we've tried to to live that out and to model that. You know, and I think one of the things leaders can do. And, um, you know, is, is we, we don't contribute uh, or add to the chaos by saying, well, that's not my present or that's not the, we, we have to you know, figure out ways to build unity and to live as though our allegiance is to the kingdom of, of God first, the way of Jesus first, and then let everything else sort of, um, you know, 
rest or come to rest underneath that regardless of what happens. And I think it's a, to me, it's a freeing and very peaceful thing to realize that we might have to make some different decisions one way or the other, but, but the fundamental thing that we're doing will not change, you know, one bit yeah. um, after next week. And that, that's, a, listen, there's a, you talk about a foundation that can't be shaken. That's it. Yeah. Amen. Preach it. Okay. So we would like to open it up to Q&A. There's been a boatload of action in the chat, which is awesome. More conversation, which is terrific. So I would say to those of you who are participating, if you could start putting specific questions in the chat, that helps us know how to facilitate the conversation. Um, so here's how this will logistically work. Chats go, uh, questions go in the chat. We will call you out by name. Uh, if you can get yourself unmuted and, and, uh, turn your video on, it goes faster. If not, we'll be searching through you in the participants to help you with that so that you can ask that question directly, um, to Mike and to Megan. So that's how we'll handle it. I think earlier in the chat, there was a good question. There's been so, <laughs> so Linda much. Ruth yeah, that's right. had something. Uh, so we'll, maybe we'll just say that. Linda Ruth, yeah. would you pop in here? It was much earlier in the chat. But it was, well, I, yeah, you flagged that earlier. I don't know that I had a question. <laughs> I was responding because there was so much great stuff going on. Um, I don't. I don't know that I actually had a question, guys. Are you Sorry. finding what caught your attention, John? I was looking, but nope. I don't see it. it. I think it had something to do with how we vote with self-interest. Yes. Uh, is that ringing enough of a bell? Yep. Yep. Oh, okay. That that wasn't so much of a question as just a suggestion, like really listening to what both Mike and Megan were saying, especially what you were saying, Megan. Um, what? So it was more like a rhetorical question. It was like, what might happen if every single Christian went to the, you know, the place of voting with the thought of, not voting for our narrow self-interest, like what is going to be good for me and my kind of echelon of society, but rather with thinking about our neighbors who maybe, like Hank was saying, have actually been denied the vote for, you know, centuries, right? And even now, uh, even though like it looks like there's full access to the vote. Like someone was saying, there are still voter suppression tactics going on that are actually disenfranchising people. What if we, especially white Christians, went to vote with those neighbors in mind and voted thinking that way, you know, loving our neighbors. I love that, Megan. I love that. Going to vote as a way of loving our neighbors, not bringing the kingdom. It's not going to happen. Jesus is the one that's going to do that, not the president, but loving our neighbors. There's so much in that statement that resonates with me. Um, my church knows this, but I'm obsessed with Philippians chapter two, because I think the whole gospel is in the Philippians two, this, this Christ hymn that Jesus did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself nothing. Um, and like, I think if, if there's one core posture that is the essential posture of a disciple, it is that, that self-emptying downward trajectory and I, I don't think talking about voting is distinct in that. I just think like like everything else in the Christian's life, like everything should be about the interest of the other. Um, and 
if there's one thing I want to see my, my people postured toward, like just as a way of thinking, a way of seeing the world, a way of engaging everywhere. It is like, how do, how do I empty myself so that others are lifted? And that, that is the motion of Jesus. So, and I, have a, I think, go ahead. So John. I have a question for you, Mike, because of a statement you said, and in the chat, somebody uh, was saying, that uh, you had said, you know, at the end of the day, nothing changes. I think you were saying for the church, uh, the point that was being made in the chat was, yes, but there's also racism and xenophobia and there's injustice. And so there are, there are um, hard, hard, broken realities, yeah, that are pervasive. And so how do you thread that needle from Megan saying, well, you know, the church is the locus of all of, all of the kingdom's say, advancement and flourishing when you have a, a society that feels like to some, especially our friends who are a minority and in living in urban s- settings and experiencing systematic racism and et cetera, it feels like the, their, their city is smoldering. And so... What do you, what do you guys do with yeah. that? So, I mean, I, you know, that's where I think the, the, cause it's, it's really easy to say, you know, if we just voted like Jesus would, right. I mean, that's like 90% of the problem um, because everybody has their, uh, and, and what we do is we overlay um, kind of what, what our king, what we try to take the things that, that are going to build the kingdom of God and we use them to build the kingdom of the world and it won't work. They're two fundamentally different systems. Um, the way I handle this politically is number one is you got to get really, really, really local. You've got to get local, local, local with your community, with the, your politicians, with the people who are in charge of the decisions that are made in your city or county. The reason this is important because it's, it's the only thing you can really, all the national narrative is never going to get better. It's just, it's probably, it's, there's, we're not going to end the chaos. Um, I can predict, you know, whichever one gets elected, there's going to be ramifications in terms of the narrative that comes out. And it's, it's, it's predictable. It is 100% predictable. What, what's different is if I know what's happening in my community, Wilmington is one of the hot, you know, one, Wilmington has the only uh, successful coup in the United States of America in 1898. The white supremacists overrun and um, killed, slaughtered uh, black people and drove them out of the city. It took till 1995 for that to even be like historically recognized. Hmm. So what we've had to do is to under, I've had to understand that as a, as a white person to understand it, and then to get to like to its relationships. When I talk to people who, I mean, when we had a lot of the protests that were recent, you know, I know police officers, I know protesters. I got on the phone with both of them. I called every you know friend that I have, um, black and white, and had conversations. I got to work in my own head and heart to try to say, God, what can I do about this? And what it always turns out to is extending a hand to someone. It's a name and a story. And, you know, I can't control what's going to happen in some other part of the country. I can do something about what's happening right here in my neighborhood. And that's why it literally is every choice that I make. If I can contribute to the healing here and if the pervasiveness of God's people do that everywhere, it is it is leaven that leavens up, uh, that affects the whole lump. And that's, that's the way his kingdom works. And I don't think he's going to change that now. I think that's so great, Mike. And I would add maybe just two more things. Um, 
One is I, I think when it comes to the prophetic role of the church and society, uh, I think at least I'm going to say this with um, some tentativeness because I'm still working this out. <laughs> but I think the church can be much bolder and more prophetic in saying what's wrong than in saying what's right when it comes to the political system. <laughs> so, like, we can call sin, sin and evil, evil <laughs> when we see it operating with a great deal of boldness um, while not having perfect clarity and confidence on what the solution is. So, so I'd like to see the church, the church bolder in, in the calling out of what we know is out of alignment with the character of Jesus um, and humbler about our, our ability to say what the solution is within, uh, you know, the, the, the powers, (laughs) the solution within the system of what Paul calls the powers, which are not following Jesus at all. Um, The second thing is I, I think the church also just shouldn't, sometimes not always but sometimes political attention in some communities becomes an excuse for the church to be lazy because it's it's easier to like cast a vote once a year than to actually love and know your neighbor right and like nothing you do politically gets you off the hook of being the church like we (laughs) are god's new economy like everything you own also belongs to to your christian neighbors like do you know that no matter how you vote on taxes um your belongings are the churches (laughs) in jesus's name like i could say that for a number of issues but but i just don't want us to use don't want us to excuse ourselves from the hard work of actually actually live in this thing right i think that's what's actually allowed the church to kind of exist like especially when it comes to issues of race and oppression or or that the the because people think that they can just pick the right political decisions they label it opportunity and then go on about their business we don't we don't ever have to like like consider someone else like that's the thing is if if we and i think the the thing that's that I'm wrote down got to pay attention to is the prophetic role. I mean, that's a really important part. I don't even have, it's not on our radar often, but the idea that what I found in our, in my own personal life. And then what I see in, in folks from me is just that willingness to extend a hand like it, you know, to know, I know issues and I know, you know, bigger, you know, kind of visionary things, but like to know a person and a story and to really get into that and let that, let that seep into my soul and affect me. Um, is what, you know, is what, what I'm like, what God has been doing in my life uh, through this season. I'd like to pop over to Tim in Nebraska's question. I think there's, he's talking about um, ideologies being reflected. And then Steve Clary also, I think that was Steve Clary, also had a question about values. But let's start with Tim in Nebraska. Hi, Tim. Hi, I was actually just running, I'm, I'm doing a memorial service. Uh, so I have a have a meeting about that now, but one of the things that I think is the challenge here is I, I'm a, I'm moderate. I'm from a, a fundamentalist Baptist background. I church planted with the, the Southern Baptists, right? Like the politics of America doesn't affect me all that much, but I'm really white. And um, it seems like we take this easy road of, uh, for my, I'm Canadian. So my Canadian friends, we miss it. There's a binary system here, either this or this. And I think that really changes the imagination of the American Christian political ideas. We get stuck in this one or the other. And then worse, we get stuck in the idea, well, then maybe it's this happy middle in between the two. Uh, the, the famous line that we see pastors saying, well, I have liberals and conservatives are upset at me as if you know, what they should say is liberals and conservatives know I love them. Um, but it just, it feels like this election and these times are even more so dramatic in that it, there's so much xenophobia. There's so much overt racism. There's so much over lying. 
Uh, you know, again, from a fundamentalist background, it just boggles my mind that evangelical fundamentalism could ever support such an awful human being. I have never once in my life voted for someone who I didn't think was morally upright, but I'm from Canada. So I, you know, there, there has to be a, well, 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 there's a bit of a, we need to thread that needle, but at some point too, and maybe Megan already got this and that it's calling out the evil and not always pretending we have the answers, but it's just, it's just so much more, it feels so much more dramatic now than, than in other times. And maybe that's just because we have someone who's much more willing to lie about everything. I, anyway, sorry, it's, that ended up rambling, but I, I do have to run, but thank you so much for doing Bye, Tim. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. God bless you in that service. Then I'd like to pop over to, it was Steve Clary, a question about um, values, wanting to follow up with that. And this is probably our closing question, and we have just a couple of minutes for it. So, Steve? I think basically speaking as somebody actually from outside the States and speaking into the sort of uh, situation there, it's a difficult choice, isn't it? Whichever you do. But I think the underpinning thing is about the values to which we actually hold and, and uh, they need to actually encourage those values. And it's really about a conversation from our experience in the UK over Brexit that how do we actually sort of encourage those values to be shared in a congregation? How do you encourage people to listen to each other, not just talk at each other, but actually listen to each other and actually see the good in the other person and to try to understand where people are coming from. So I think that's part of the issue, which you actually have maybe. How, you know, when you get a polarised uh, so society, how do you kind of like enable people to actually sort of leave that aside, keep Jesus at the centre, and be able to actually sort of reflect on that with each other in, in a wholesome and, and, and good way, you know, which actually builds people up, encourages them. That's a great question, Steve. Yeah. I'd love to hear like practically what, what, how do you facilitate that in your settings? I'll let you start on this one, Mike. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's a great question, Steve, you know, and part of what we've done is some of the exercises of understanding um, and we model it. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't yell and scream and get all crazy about things. Um, I don't, I don't emotionally like leverage one, um, you know, issue over another. Um, I tell lots of stories about people that I know and interact with, um, you know, and then I provide a lot of litmus test. I mean, you know, it is, it's like, can you, can you, you know, it, it, can you follow someone on Twitter or Instagram? Can you read something that they wrote? Can you listen to them talk? And then instead of just dismissing them, check your own emotions, I'm in there. What are you feeling? And then, and then do the same thing for other people. You know, we've got a lot of um, racial conversations here uh, in our city. We've been having them and some really, really great ones in some really healthy ways. There's still a ton of work to do. Um, but, but the, the posture of understanding and to model that and to be able to, um, you know, teach that to people is I think really the only way. And it's gotta be relational. I mean, there's just, there, that's why I keep, you know, the thing is we've, we've got to prevent people from thinking that they are voting in the kingdom of God. That, that is, that is just not the case. And so we have to, you know, you may have to you vote all the politics, but you've, we've got to understand our allegiances to this kingdom. And that requires something of us. Uh, I think what Megan was saying earlier, you know, when, when you start considering enemy love and you start considering um, you know, that everything you own belongs to other people. I mean, it's, it's this is not easy stuff for us, and there aren't there aren't political solutions to this. It's just a willing. Am I willing to do what Jesus is asking of me or not? 
And that's, that's what it comes down to is do we do, is he our King, you know, or, or is he not? Last word, Megan. Steve's question went to just a very, the core work of church leaders in some ways about spiritual formation. And I'm like, I'm a huge advocate as a a leader for spiritual practices. Um, Yes. Because, because I think by the time you get to a heated conversation, it's too late (laughs) if you haven't done the like, inner work beforehand. Um, but I, I do think that one of the, the things that Protestants in America in particular have gotten wrong is like over-individualized spiritual practices all the time. And the, if, if we're going to kind of reconstruct a shared value system, part of it is we have to be gathered around scripture together. Like we, we need to be reading the stories of Jesus together and not just preaching on them because that's a one-voiced hearing, yep. but, but sitting with them and like, wrestling together with what did you see in this story that I didn't see? Like, how did this, this cause you to have a different vision of Jesus than, than I thought I had and letting ourselves be surprised and startled by, by the different lenses we're bringing. And um, so I, I think anyway, we can as leaders facilitate that kind of open reading of Jesus. It would be helpful. Yeah. Well, this, this conversation has been helpful. Uh, you have, kind of taken us on a theological journey. You've taken us on a practical journey, a pastoral journey, um, dealing with the emotions and with uh, how it is that we facilitate these conversations in our church. So I'm just, I'm just very thankful. I just want to say from a Jesus collective perspective, thank you for leaning in and for uh, just blessing us with some of your uh, hard won wisdom. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that this wisdom comes from uh, experiencing good things and comes from experiencing emails that are hard to read at times. So I just uh, say to you both, thank you very much. And it's been great to, to be with you. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check in at JesusCollective.com where you can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find info about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff. Or you can find us on social media too. And listening is such an important part of our journey, especially in these early days. So you can feel free to reach out to us with ideas and feedback and suggestions. You can always connect with us by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you.